Hello, welcome again to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. So how are my peeps today? You doing well? As of the creation of this podcast broadcast, we have been in COVID lockdown now for over a year. For sure, it's been tough on a lot of us, which is one of the reasons why I decided it was time to do a music podcast to help lighten our load because music is certainly something that can lift our spirits in times that are very tough. And when you think about it, music gives us a place to go when we have to stay where we are. So settle back. We're going to travel in our musical sojourn today to Britain. And the music that we're going to hear is of a contemplative nature, definitely at the start. So hopefully this will put you in a fairly relaxed, tranquil, calm, and peaceful mind frame. Although things are going to spice up quite a bit uh, towards the end of uh, this podcast with something quite well known. But what we're going to start with is uh, we're going to go as far back as the 12th century in Britain and take a listen to some Sarum chant. Now, what is Sarum chant? Well, Sarum chant is a type of Gregorian chant. But not really. It's a type of plain song, which really is what Gregorian chant is as well, that has influences of Gregorian chant. See, the problem sometimes with terminology is it gets too generic. Let's, let's take a look at the term classical, for example, when applied to music. That's a marketing term. Same with rock, same with jazz even, same with, uh, well, a number, number of genres. It's, it's easier to commodify certain things, certain genres, so that record companies had an easier time of selling their material to us, uh, whether it's through record stores or even through radio broadcasts. When you think of the term classical music, we actually apply it to a wide variety of Western art music dating as far back as I would say the 8th century, spanning the time all the way up to now. So it really covers a lot of territory that it shouldn't because the actual classical period, as we've defined it, it was around the period 1760 to 1820. So we're getting into some semantics here with regards to terminology, but it's important to keep in mind because the term Gregorian chant has been commodified as well. Gregorian chant is a type of plain chant. Now, plain chant is unison singing that we associate with Gregorian chant. Why it was all labeled Gregorian chant is because when the music was codified, say around the 8th century, by Pope Gregory, that's the dominant form of plain chant within the uh, Western Church at the time. However, there were other traditions uh, that sort of emerged at the same time, and they're tied in closely with the rites uh, performed uh, within the church churches at that time. Now, what's a rite? A rite, shall I explain, within the churches that celebrate the Eucharist, shall we say, is the localized way of performing Mass. Let's put it that way. Mass, after all, is theater. Now, I hear some of you wags out there going, no, it's not. Mass is density times volume. Well, you get no more sacramental wine. You're cut off. So, Mass is theater. The whole idea of celebrating Mass is to commemorate, of course, the crucifixion 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the Eucharist is all about. That's what the service every Sunday, the Mass, is all about. But what was codified as being part of the Mass way back in the Council of Nicaea, a good millennia before 1200, the use of the Gloria, Glory of God in the Highest, the Credo, the Lord's Prayer, when you start getting into localized regions, they had their own sets of text or liturgy that they would like to append to the celebration of the Mass. This gave things a local color. Now, the predominant rite, of course, is the Roman rite associated with the Rome Church of the Roman Catholic Church. But there were other rites within uh, the Catholic tradition. There was the Mozarabic rite, uh, popular in Iberia. There was the, and it still is, the Glacolitic rite, which is within the Slavic regions. And then in Britain, there was something known as the Sarum Rite. So what is the Sarum Rite? Well, Sarum is the shorthand term for the word Sarisbury, or from the Latin Sarisburiense, which was the name of the area that eventually became known as Salisbury. I stake my reputation on that bit of information. That is where Sarum, as an abbreviation of the term, uh, of the words uh, Sarisberry, Saris wonderful thing to pronounce, that's where Sarum gets its abbreviation. So the chant, the plain song associated with this tradition, um, grew out of some of the Roman influence, but the thing is that these influences were back and forth. So even the, uh, the um, plain songs of uh, Pope Gregory were influenced by Mozarabic tradition, by the traditions from Britain, and then they in turn influenced these areas back. I mean, art after all always goes back and forth with regards to new ideas and uh, concepts because again, the mass, the text, the music is all art in praise of, in praise of God, shall we say. The other influence that's often overlooked within plain chant itself is the possibility, indeed the probability, that the folk music, what we would call folk music, but the music of the people who live in the area definitely had an influence on melodic contour, melodic shape. Um, the melodies themselves, as far as we know, could possibly have come from folk traditions. There are certain examples that have been traced within the Gregorian tradition where they do know that the original melody was um, folk in origin, but that's mostly hard to determine because this music was not notated. Only the music of the church was notated. This is actually how notation started within the Western tradition as a, as a memory aid, shall we say, for performance uh, or for use in, in a service. But we can tell also by melodic lines within various plain chant traditions the influence of folk music because those melodic lines stayed within the folk culture of the area. So it actually is quite easy to determine within the studies of certain traditions such as Sarum to find, for example, within Sarum influences of northern British and even Burgundian North French um, music elements within the chant structure. What makes Sarum chant unique? Well, nothing necessarily more or less unique than the traditions you'd find within the Roman Church 
or within the Mozarabic rite. But what is interesting about the Sarum tradition is that the actual texts within the Sarum rite are quite dramatic and florid, and there's a lot of use of what we call troping. In other words, adding texts to the already established um, liturgy of, uh, of the celebration. And the, the troping within the Sarum tradition is quite beautiful. In fact, it was so influential that it, there were people across Europe who quite enjoyed the Sarum tradition, and certain churches, even as far as Portugal, were practicing the Sarum rite. Even the uh, Orthodox churches, whenever they were doing services, for example, in English-speaking lands, actually liked the Sarum rite because it was fairly close in their philosophical uh, concepts of their own rite, which is based on um, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So Sarum has a wide influence, although by the time of the Reformation, Sarum was actually banished as being too popish for obvious reasons, if you know your church history. Didn't mean that the practice actually disappeared, it just went underground. We'll talk about that later. But um, its influence uh, was certainly strong up until the 15th, 16th century, and I will argue that it continued. And the CD that we're going to listen to uh, was recorded in Salisbury Cathedral by the uh, cloister choir of the cathedral. And the whole point of the CD, which I believe was only for sale within uh, the church's um, gift store, along with uh, the printed sheet music of Sarum Chant, the whole idea of this uh, recording is to uh, further publicize the usefulness, <laughs> the usefulness of Sarum Chant within contemporary uh, church liturgy as well as the fact that it's very pleasing to listen to in a home environment. Now, I didn't buy this particular CD in Salisbury. I've never been. I found it secondhand. But uh, I'm glad I found it because it's, it's a lovely disc that presents three different um, concepts of a mass celebration using Sarum chant. And all three versions are known as, for the sake of publication, for the sake of performance, Misa Orbis Factor. Now the names of masses, uh, whether they're plain song or even into the Renaissance, they tend to take their names from either the opening text of the, the service itself, such as Kyrie Eleison, for example, or the name of the tune that was used as the basis for the entire mass. That's a Renaissance technique. In this case, uh, they've decided to title what we're listening Misa Orbis Factor because the words Orbis Factor, or literally Maker of the World, is appended to the beginning of the Kyrie Eleison text, or Lord Have Mercy. So the first thing we're going to hear is a setting of this Mass using the various um, separate settings because the Kyries and Glorias and Kratos, they all have different melodies set to them. Some of them were directly from the Gregorian tradition. Others uh, were only found within Sarum, within um, uh, uh, Salisbury Cathedral in these manuscripts. That's actually what we're going to hear, what is specific to the Sarum tradition. And the five traditional parts of the Mass that is being represented here, the Kyrie, the Gloria, the Credo, the Sanctus Benedictus, and the Agnus Dei, with the conclusion, Ite Misa Est, 
what we're hearing is the unadulterated version as would have been heard for the most part by parishioners, uh, people who attended the cathedral when it was built in 1220, or at least as best as we know, because we really have no idea how these plain chants actually sounded. And um, tradition is, has been lost with regards to that. We can have as close an approximation as we can get just by, again, studying folk music, but there tends to be um, a misconception that all chant was performed the way we hear uh, the Gregorian chants performed. We, do, we just don't know this. We don't know if, if there may have even been ornamentation. Probably doubtful, but we don't know. Anyhow, we're going to hear um, as best as possible, as I said, how it would have sounded in the 12th, 13th century. Um, the interesting thing about the music, I find, is that it is not as florid as the Gregorian settings are, which is really interesting when you consider that the texts are very dramatic, the music not so much. That doesn't mean it's not worth listening to. It's very intense in its own way. The music tends to be more syllabic rather than uh, melismatic, which is more of the Gregorian tradition. I believe that this was on purpose so that one was paying attention to the text as much as the music, that they're definitely uh, interlinked. So after the five sections of the Mass that's traditional, uh, there is sort of what I would call a recessional antiphon, uh, a plain song hymn. There, there are three on this disc. The first one is Pange Lingua. These are all texts from St. Thomas Aquinas. So it, it makes, a, 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 makes a nice sort of a exit, shall we say, as, as the procession winds its way away from the altar. Let's listen to this. I've been talking an awful lot. I think it's now time to listen to this music. So here are the five traditional sections of a Mass. Kyrie, Gloria, Credo, Sanctus Benedictus, Agnus Dei, and the plain song hymn, Pange Lingua. It's performed by the... Um, Cloister Choir, Salisbury Cathedral, and it's under the direction of Philip Baxter. Thank <laughs> you. 
Sarum chant mass setting from the time of the building of Salisbury Cathedral around the uh, beginning of uh, the 13th century. We heard uh, what would have been heard by uh, members of the congregation around that time, the mass being celebrated in Latin. So we have the traditional five uh, movements of the mass, shall we call the movements, Kyrie, Gloria, Credo, Sanctus Benedictus and Agnus Dei with a concluding Ite Misa S, go the Mass is ended. And it was followed by a plain song based on a text of St. Thomas Aquinas, Pange Lingua. It was performed by the Cloister Choir of Salisbury Cathedral under Philip Baxter. So the next thing we're going to hear is how a Sarum chant Mass would have sounded around the time of the Book of Common Prayer, which was the important uh, prayer book of the Anglican Church in the 17th century. We're talking around 1662. Now, very interesting. I mentioned earlier that by the time of good old King Henry VIII, anything Roman was considered to be popish and banned. But was it? As I said, a lot of, uh, a lot of the music went underground. There were still... British Catholics. They had to meet in secret um, and uh, even though they were known and they quite often had to pay a recusancy fee for being Catholic, it was either that or be put to death, uh, it seems that this tradition of Sarum chant lived with them um, and couldn't help but be cross-influenced into the new Anglican Church uh, that King Henry VIII set up because some of the great composers of the great choral tradition of the early Anglican Church were themselves closet Catholics, talking about people like Thomas Tallis, William Byrd. By the way, their very close friend, William Shakespeare, was also a closet Catholic, so they had to, shall we say, worship in private. 
not necessarily in secret because let's face it Elizabethan England knew who all these noblemen were and uh, kind of turned the other way because their money was kind of handy nevertheless what we're going to hear now is how the movements of the mass would have sounded at the time of the Book of Common Prayer which as I said is around 1662 so now what you're going to hear the main difference is the language it's no longer Latin it is now English. So we are now going to hear a setting of this Misa Orbis Factor, but in English. Again, we have a Kyrie, a Gloria, a Credo, Sanctus Benedictus, and the Agnus Dei with the dismissal Ite Misa Est. This time, as the recessional antiphon, we're going to hear another St. Thomas Aquinas text, the Heavenly Word, which is a translation uh, from 1854, actually, of uh, one of St. Thomas's uh, texts. Once again, here is the Cloister Choir of Salisbury Cathedral under the direction of Philip Baxter, who arranged this version of the uh, Sarum Mass. <laughs>
setting of the Sarum Rite Mass that would have been heard around the time of the Book of Common Prayer, 1662. It was performed by uh, a Sarum Rite choir from the origins of the Sarum Rite in Salisbury Cathedral. This is the Cloister Choir under the direction of Philip Baxter. I think it's uh, evident in listening to that that now the melodic line is shaped by the English text as opposed to a Latin text. The words do affect uh, the, the movement of a melody, I'm firmly convinced. And so using the English vernacular definitely has an impact on a melodic shape. The only exception in this case would be that the Kyrie was still sung traditionally in the Greek, which was the last fragment of Greek in a Latin mass, by the way. Uh, it's still maintained to this day within the the uh, Latin rite of the Catholic Church if uh, service is being performed in Latin. It still can be, although technically frowned upon since Vatican II. This setting may sound familiar to those who are High Anglican, shall we say, because it's quite close to how things are often done today within uh, an Anglican, a High Anglican service. The reason being is around the time of the 1840s and 1850s, you had what was known as the Oxford Movement. Loosely, this was uh, an attempt, shall we say, within the Anglican Church to be closer in its roots to the original Roman Catholic rite, but without actually being Roman Catholic. 
High Anglicans rightly consider themselves to have always been Catholic in the use of the word Catholic, which is Greek for Western. There were, though, uh, interest in, in, there was actually interest in um, maintaining some sort of connection or reestablishing some sort of connection with the Roman Church, however, not full union. Now, not everybody thought that way, and some en ended up joining the Roman Catholic Church, the most famous example being Cardinal Newman. But what happened with the Oxford movement, this was where Sarum as Sarum, both in music and text, was reborn. And what happened around this time is that in order to make the music, shall we say, more palpable to 19th century tastes, we now have melodic lines uh, that were originally plain chant, now with organ accompaniment. This is probably the use of Sarum chant that most High Anglicans would be familiar with today. For example, uh, in use uh, in Advent services or for Evensong. This grew out of uh, the 19th century, uh, around the same time as uh, the collection of uh, the hymnal known as uh, Hymns Ancient and Modern. It sort of went hand in hand. The idea was to have two British traditions uh, carried on at the same time within the Anglican Church, that of the hymnody, as well as the original and traditional plain chant. And composers such as Vaughan Williams uh, contributed to this genre, as did, especially in Canada, Healy Willen, who was a great master at writing um, responsories and mass settings in the Sarum tradition. So this is exactly what we're going to hear right now. We're now going to hear, the, again, the traditional five sections of a mass that originated with the Latin, now definitely in English, and with organ accompaniment. As a recessional again, we have another um, hymn tune. This is a, or I should say, plain, plain song tune from the New English hymnal, as the other two were actually, The We Adore, which is a setting, uh, again, of a St. Thomas Aquinas text, but from 1850. So, let us now listen to the uh, choir with organ uh, of the Cloister Choir of Salisbury Cathedral perform what would be considered the use of a Sarum chant mass today.
final example of sarum chant as it would be performed today in a number of uh, Anglican parishes, particularly High Anglican. It certainly um, is encouraged uh, by uh, a number of parishes to provide a sort of a connection to the old ways and uh, was propagated even more so by being uh, placed within the uh, alternative service book uh, of the Anglican Church issued in 1980. Here we heard it sung by, as we heard all the other versions of Sarum chant plain song in mass settings, we heard it performed by the Cloister Choir of Salisbury Cathedral under the direction of Philip Baxter. The organist, by the way, was Andrew Post. The organ of Salisbury Cathedral is quite lovely. There are recordings uh, of the organ all by itself, and they're well worth uh, finding. The, um, the uh, hymn tune that we heard at the end as the recessional, um, known as Thee We Adore, is actually quite popular in uh, a number of uh, Roman Catholic parishes as well, especially after Vatican II. That shouldn't be so surprising because uh, even the strongly anti-papal Lutheran hymn, Ein Feste Burg, or A Mighty Fortress is Our God, is also popular within uh, the Roman Catholic right now, although uh, with slightly altered verses compared to what Luther had originally um, written. The Sarum rite itself is still considered a, a valid part of the Roman Catholic Church, but I don't really know of anybody uh, using it. It's possible that there are parishes here and there throughout Europe as well as Britain that uh, use the Sarum rite. It is quite a beautiful rite, I must say. The music I find um, very beautiful, although, uh, well, sparse is the wrong word. It's, it's more um, restrictive in its way than, as I said, the floridness of Gregorian chant. However, I think it hits a mark and I found it to be very meditative and I hope you have found it rather relaxing. This is something I think we all need to be paying attention to in these times of COVID and maybe never ending pandemics. Our future uh, is rather indeterminate with regards to what's going to happen in many ways. But we must keep counsel, keep our heads because we'll pull through all this. And one way to help alleviate our stress is by using music for relaxation purposes. In general, I have never really been a fan, shall we say, of marketing, especially classical music, as background. We often get that with classical chill-out albums, what have you. But there is a place for music beyond what I like to call head-in-hand -hand paying attention. The point of chanting, the point of plain song, is not so much for the music itself, as beautiful as it is. It's also to put one in a headspace that is part and parcel of the drama of the service taking place, but also to help ease and calm one's mind, to think about things beyond um, aspects of life that stress us. It should be noted that there have been studies done uh, amongst faith groups throughout the world that practice some form of musical chant. Because chant is often used, as I said, to put one in a meditative state. Also, one could argue to put one in, into an alternate state of mind. This is, a, this is a practice with chant that goes back probably 
beyond the written word. So studies have been done and they've discovered that communities that participate, particularly religious orders that participate in some form of plain song or chant singing, have some of the lowest stress levels amongst any communities measured. So that's food for thought. You're visiting Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. Now, we're going to switch directions somewhat, although we're staying in Britain. And I would argue one could uh, trace uh, influences of sound chant in something that we're about to hear, probably the most ubiquitous of choral works in the British English tradition, George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. Now, we're not going to hear the whole thing, um, but what we are going to hear um, is highlights, shall we say, from uh, Messiah, all the great choruses. Before I continue about the disc, this concept of Sarum chant possibly being in the background, well, remember I pointed out that the great English antiphonal tradition, the great choral tradition of the early Anglican Church, was influenced by composers who most certainly knew the Sarum tradition. The thing about Handel's Messiah is it's the perfect combination of Italian opera aria, because Handel was a great opera composer, the German tradition of Eastertide passion music, which is very famous in the Bach passions, and English antiphonal singing. This is what we're going to hear today. And what I want to focus on is a disc that I often took for granted and decided to revisit quite recently, and I'm glad I did. It's taken from the first recording done by the great choral conductor Robert Shaw of Messiah, which he did in the 60s, 1966 approximately. He recorded it again with Atlanta Forces uh, for Telarc, great recording. But I often overlooked this recording of the Messiah because of the later recording. And it was always one of those discs of, well, yeah, I'll get it, I'll get to it later because the repertoire is so well known, right? So I was thinking, yeah, this disc is always going to be around. But I finally decided to listen to it. As I said, Robert Shaw is one of the great choral conductors of our time, or was one of the great choral conductors of our time. I had the pleasure of meeting and working with him back in 1990 when um, I was a recording producer, uh, producer assistant as well. And he was in Toronto for the 1990 uh, International Choral Festival. Got to hear him perform and um, conduct the great Beethoven Misa Solemnis as well as Bach's B minor Mass. But talking to this man was something else. This man was music personified and his insights into all aspects of the music. This translates into his conducting. This is no exception, this recording from 1966. The interesting thing about this recording, again, which I took for granted, was really it was one of the first recordings of the Messiah to eschew the built-up performance practice traditions of the 19th century, which really overloaded the work. Extra syrupy orchestrations, choirs that were huge. This sort of um, emphasizes the uh, old adage that uh, that tradition is the last worst performance in some ways. But what Robert Shaw did is that he returned as, as best as he could, as, as much as he wanted to, without compromising sound, shall we say, to one of the original versions of the Messiah. Now, there is no definitive version of Messiah, because uh, when Handel composed it in 1741, and it was premiered in a tavern in Dublin, that was not uncommon, 
subsequent performances were adapted according to needs and, and availability of, of, of singers and their levels of, of, of ability. So within a 20-year period, uh, it had been uh, readapted many times. What Robert Shaw did for the 1966 recording is go back to a, an edition that uh, was dated, I think, around uh, 1751. So it's not exactly the original Dublin version, but it's definitely as close to what Handel would have heard in his time. So it's nice to be able to have uh, some sort of clarity through all the muck of, shall we say, the famous Sir Thomas Beecham uh, over orchestrations, which have their place. I, I quite like them. But this is pared down more to what we would have heard as I said, at the time of Handel. And the other aspect of this recording that struck me is how incredibly electrifying it is, especially in the final chorus, Worthy is the Lamb, which just was is hair-raising, and I hope you agree. So what we're going to do is break down um, even the choruses into the three parts of the uh, oratorio, so we have some sort of context of what's going on. And the three parts are, of course, the first part deals with Advent and uh, the promised coming of Christ. The second part deals with the passion and crucifixion and the resurrection. And the third part deals with the hope of the future. In that respect, I consider Messiah to be not a Christmas work. That uh, probably is because uh, it's, a, it's a good vehicle to get bums and seats for the Christmas season. But I really feel that this is more of an Easter time work. So we're going to listen to the choruses. If you're a chorister and uh, you're used to performing this yourself, I suggest you grab your Watkins Shaw. I beg your pardon. Well, Watkins Shaw was the English musicologist who provided a performing edition that best accommodated all the different versions of, the, of Messiah that's out there, or that was out there, and it is still the standard for performing. So you might want to sing along, as there are often sing-along messiahs. I won't, because then you completely tune out. So the choruses that occur in the first part are, And the glory of the Lord, and he shall purify, for unto us a child is born. Glory to God, his yoke is easy. And that's it for part one. We're going to hear it performed by the Robert Shaw Chorale and Orchestra, conducted by the great Robert Shaw.
choruses from the first part of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, or as some churlish wags would say, Messiah's Handel. Uh, I need to make a slight amendment to something I said before we started hearing the choruses. A little mistake due to probably being so blissed out on those Sarum chants, but it's not just uh, English antiphonal singing, but anthem singing. Antiphons uh, within the singing tradition is a particular type of, of performance practice with, shall we say, call and response. But these are anthems, uh, specifically in their the, the choral excerpts are anthems in their feel, uh, and Handel wrote some great uh, anthems separate from the Messiah. So the bulk of choruses in Messiah take place in the second half. Uh, this is the real meat and potatoes of the work. Those choruses are Behold the Lamb of God, Surely he hath borne our griefs, And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. You really got to be careful how you say that one. He trusted in our God. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Let all the angels of God worship him. The Lord gave the word. Their sound is gone out into all lands. Let us break their bonds asunder. And hallelujah. Once again, here is Robert Shaw conducting his chorale and orchestra.
sumptuous, voluminous, regal courses of the second part of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah, performed by the Robert Shaw Chorale and Orchestra under the direction of the great Robert Shaw. If some of those choruses sound as if they were inspired by Handel's coronation anthems, especially the overtly popular Messiah, uh, Hallelujah Chorus. That's by design because, well, Handel is treating the, the topic of Messiah as regal for obvious reasons. The final section, part three, has my favorite choruses of the entire work. They are, O death, where is thy sting, but thanks be to God. Uh, and in this one, there are some solos taken by the soloists who would have been singing in the full recording of uh, this version of the Messiah had I been playing it. Uh, it's Florence Kopleff, contralto and Richard Lewis tenor. And then finally, the magnificent concluding chorus, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain with one of the greatest amens ever set to music. Once again, here is Robert Shaw conducting. Where is 
the concluding choruses from the third part of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah. We heard taking the solos in O Death, Where Is Thy Sting, contralto Florence Kopleff, and tenor Richard Lewis. The Robert Shaw Chorale and Orchestra were directed by Robert Shaw. I still get goosebumps over that incredibly intense and electrifying performance of the concluding Amen. Hopefully that leaves you as well on a nice musical high, but now we must part. It is the end of this podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed it, and I really hope you will tune in for more. This has been Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. Thank you for listening.